Um, we are in the book of Revelation. We're in chapter 2. We're studying Jesus' letters to the seven churches. We're in the third church. By the way, our Ventura campus is going to be joining us for this sermon. So let's give them some love. We're looking at Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. If you notice someone that's next to you and they don't have a Bible, maybe share with them. That'd be helpful for them today. The title of this message is Truth and Consequences. Truth and Consequences. It'll become clear what that means maybe as we move through it. So we're going to start reading verse 12 of Revelation chapter 2. This is Jesus speaking to these churches in Asia Minor, in this case, the one in Pergamum. So Jesus says in verse 12, And to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write, The one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this, I know where you dwell where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you, because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. Thus you also have some who in the same way hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent therefore, or else I'm coming to you quickly, and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows but he who receives it. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, it's a, it's a little bit of a heavy text today. And there's some things in it that are hard to understand, but it's the things that are easily understood that are a little more disconcerting, Lord. You're, you're going to call us to really examine our lives and our obedience to you, Jesus, the one who's worthy of being obeyed because you're so kind to us in your great love and your work on the cross. And so we just ask now as we approach your word that in our hearts and minds, it would truly be the word of God. And that we would place ourselves under it. We wouldn't be on the side sitting as connoisseurs deciding what we think about it. But we would know that it's God's word with full authority. And it's not merely to be heard, but to be obeyed. And we invite you, Holy Spirit, that as we read the word, you'd read our hearts. Deal with the issues of our hearts and, and bring us into the truth of Christ and what he's done for us on the cross. And the way that we ought to live in light of that. Help me, please, Lord, to teach and preach in a way that's faithful to you and helpful to these dear brothers and sisters here. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Well, the thing about the book of Revelation is it's not simple. It's not always easy to understand, and it says some pretty heavy things, and this is one of those passages where it's like, wow, what does that mean? So we'll try to kind of get at it a little bit. We'll remind ourselves that Jesus here is addressing the seven churches that were existent in Asia Minor at that time, now modern-day Turkey. And he's writing to him via John the Apostle, and he's looking to do a few things. He wants to comfort them. They're living in difficult circumstances, a tough culture, sort of an antichrist culture where there's lots of persecution and opposition to belief and following Jesus Christ. So he's looking to comfort them. He's looking to commend them in the areas where they're doing well. He's looking to console them in the areas where following him, following Jesus is costing them and making life hard. And he's looking to correct them. And this is one of the churches for whom he had some correction. And one of the ways that Jesus begins to do this with the churches, and remember now, these things are written to us as well. One of the ways that he does this is by by telling them repeatedly that he knows the situations that they're in. And Jesus is the one who truly knows. Remember, Christ is the one we talked about a few weeks ago, before whose eyes all things are laid bare. And the one to whom we're accountable, he sees all of our lives, the secret places, the hidden places, what no one else sees. He even knows our thoughts and our hearts, our motives and our intentions, right? Right? He's the one who knows, but he really knows, and he knows in a loving way. One of the most uh, 
I don't know, it could either be really comforting or annoying when you're going through someone, something difficult and someone says, oh, dude, I know just how you feel. You know what I mean? Depending on where you're at, it could either be like, oh, yeah, thank you. It's good to kind of commiserate with you. Or it could be like, dude, shut up. You have no idea what I'm going through. <laughs> you ever been in that situation? But scripture teaches us that Jesus is the one who truly knows. That in Christ, God draped himself in humanity. That he came and felt some of the heat, some of the pain, some of the sickness, some of the weight of this life. The book of Hebrews tells us about Christ incarnate, that he's touched with the feelings of our infirmities, that he knows our weaknesses and our suffering and what it means to endure life in this flesh. He truly knows what we struggle with, what we're fearful of, the things that confront us. And so in looking to comfort, commend, console, and correct these churches, He says to each one of them, I know, and he knew something unique about each of their circumstances. The first church that we looked at a few weeks ago, the church of Ephesus at the beginning of chapter two, he said to them, I know your deeds. They were a church who was doing a lot of good things. They were busy with the work of ministry and they were serving God and all sorts of awesome things. They were also the church that was backsliding and leaving their first love, but there was something to commend. Just says, I know your hard work. I know your deeds. I know you're serving me. I, I know what you're doing. It's good to hear that once in a while. We like to hear that from each other. Hey, man, I want to recognize your hard work. Jesus says, I I, I recognize, I know the work that you guys are doing for my namesake. And then the church in Smyrna was a persecuted church. They were the church that lived in an incredibly hostile environment to Jesus, right? And so he came to them, we saw this a couple weeks ago, and he says, I know your tribulation." Literally in the Greek, the pressure that you feel trying to be obedient to me in a culture that's hostile to what I teach and what it means to follow me. I know the pressure that you guys feel in that. Christ is able to say, I know what it's like to be rejected by culture. I know what it's like to be rejected by those who are supposed to be your people. I know what it's like for people to cry out, crucify him. I know your pressure. And so he's consoling them with that knowledge. He understands, he feels, and in all of their sufferings, Christ suffered with them. It's a foundational truth of scripture. And then he says something interesting to the church that we're looking at today, the church of Pergamum. If you saw it in the text, he says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Well, that doesn't sound good. I know where you dwell where Satan's throne is. He's saying to them, I know the space that you guys are occupying and I know it's gnarly. Remember, scripture teaches that Satan is real, right? Satan is real, evil is real and Satan is at work in the world. And it's also important to realize that Satan is not omnipresent like God. Someone say, thank you. Not omnipresent like God who is all places at all times, but but Satan is actually bound in some way by the time-space continuum. So he can't be everywhere. Sometimes it seems that way and we attribute various things to Satan because there's many demons and he's a head over them and they're all over the place. He says, I know where you dwell where Satan has his throne. I know the place where you guys occupy, there's real opposition to truth is what he's gonna get at. Real opposition to following me. And he uses this language. It's you're occupying the same space, the same city as Satan's throne. That's heavy. I don't know if he meant like Satan literally has his throne there. Like since he's not omnipresent that at the end of the first century when this is written, that's where Satan chose to took up residence and he's actually there. Or if it's more figurative because a throne speaks of power and authority. He may just be saying, you guys are living in a culture, in a city, in a space where the enemy has tremendous power. He holds a lot of sway, a lot of authority. Could be either one of those things. Either way, Jesus is saying, I get it. I get where you are. I get that there's opposition. I get that it can be difficult. I get that there are tremendous challenges to the truth. Let me tell you what he's calling them to do in the face of that. He's calling them to go ahead and live out Christian truth where it isn't popular. Notice what he doesn't say to them. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and my advice to you is that you just bail. Just go find a new place, move to Montana, get out of it all, just 
It's not what he's saying, right? He's wanting them to continue to live out Christian truth in a place where it was unpopular. Not so removed, not so different from our culture and where we live and the times in which we live. And Christ's primary concern in this text is about truth. We get that tip in the way that he self-identifies in verse 12, right? He calls himself the one who has a sharp two-edged sword. And we know from scripture that the sharp two-edged sword is representative of God's word, of God's truth. And he's reminding us of that glorious description that we had of Jesus in Revelation chapter one, where he's the one who's in the the, the white robe and the hair like wool and the eyes like fire and the feet like burnished bronze and the sword coming from his mouth and figurative language to speak about Christ and all of his resurrected glory. And every time that he addresses one of these seven churches, he self-identifies with part of that imagery that relates to what they're going through. Right? Remember the church in Ephesus, the first church that we looked at, their problem was they were backsliding. They were leaving their first love. He said, I have this against you. You've left your first love. And so the way that he self-identified to them before correcting them was by saying, I am the one who holds the seven stars of the church in my right hand and the one who walks among the seven lampstands. The idea being I, the, the stars were representative of a representative body of the leaders of the church. I, I'm not far from you guys and what's going on. And the lampstands were representative of the churches themselves. I'm not a God who sits far off and says, figure it out. I am your God who is near, in the midst, who cares, who's present. And while you're pulling away, I want you to know that I'm coming near. That was the church in Ephesus. So that's the way he self-identified himself. But the church in Pergamum, excuse me, Smyrna that we looked at week before last was a persecuted church. And he told them, Some of you, for your belief in Jesus Christ, are going to be thrown into prison. Some of you are even going to be killed. So the way that he self-identified at the beginning of it was by saying, I am the first and the last, the one who was dead, and the one who is living and alive forevermore. Because their world was going to stop making sense in a moment. Just for following Jesus, they're going to be persecuted, imprisoned, some of them executed. And life was going to seem overwhelming and out of control. And he wanted them to know, I hold the beginning from the end. I am the beginning and the end. I'm the A to Z. I hold it. And the worst thing that you face, death and all of its terrors, I already faced it. I know what it is to be tortured and tormented, beaten, spit upon, broken, cut open, crucified and to die, but I've been resurrected, and I live forevermore, and so you shall live. So even the thing that is your greatest fear and the most scary threat, I've already overcome it. See what he's doing in self-identifying in these ways? How does he self-identify in our text today to the church in Pergamum? He says, I am the one with a sharp two-edged sword, meaning that whatever he's dealing with with them has something to do with the truth. And the problem in Pergamum is that they were getting the basic truth about Jesus right, but they weren't getting the implications of how they were supposed to live in light of that right. They had, ready for some big words? They had orthodoxy, right belief, but not orthopraxy, right practice. They had some good, strong Christian doctrine, but they weren't practicing good, strong Christian morality. Jesus is going to say to them, in essence, that doesn't cut it. If you believe the truth of who I am, it should shape and inform the way that you live in an immoral culture. That's what he's saying to them. And so there are two consequential truths that he's primarily concerned with. The truth about himself and the truth about holiness. And he's going to show them how they are interconnected. The truth about himself, he says in verse 13, you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith. You hold fast my name. Anytime scripture speaks of the name of God or the name of Christ, it speaks of his character, his quality, the the truth about him, his essence, his identity, his glory, and importantly, remember this, his reputation. 
has to do with his reputation. Those things are, are represented in, in names in scripture and in ancient culture. He says, you hold fast my name, my character, my quality, my glory, my reputation. You're, you're holding on to that. And you did not deny my faith. Speaking of his work, his work on the cross to provide forgiveness for, his sin, for our sins. His resurrection from the dead that we might be forgiven and have new life. The gospel. This is a church that was holding to these truths in a time and a place where it was difficult to hold to them. Notice what he said there in verse 13. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. That's all we know about Antipas. We don't have any more information but it's pretty clear what happened. We talked a couple weeks ago about imperial religion, Caesar worship, and that the call of the day was that every person in the land had to come to the altar of the Roman emperor Caesar and say, Caesar is Lord, and offer a pinch of incense there. And once they did that, they got their certificate of authenticity that they had done, and they could go do whatever they wanted. But if they refused to do it, there was some real problem. And Christians had a problem with doing it because they believed that Jesus was Lord. And so they had a problem with saying, Caesar is Lord. And apparently, push came to shove in Pergamum one time. And this guy Antipas was pressured, being, pressured into saying, they tried to pressure him into saying, Caesar is Lord, and he, he wouldn't do it. He remained faithful to the name of Christ and the work of Christ. He said, I won't ascribe that glory or that work to anyone else but Jesus, and it cost him his life. And we learned last week that that's not so far from us. That's a reality for many Christians in the world today. Places like Saudi Arabia, Pakistan, Iran, India, parts of Indonesia, parts of Africa. That's, that's a reality even today. So there was some moment of crisis where, where push came to shove. And this church did the right thing. He's commending them. They held to right belief in Jesus Christ. They would not negotiate on those non-negotiables of the Christian faith. And that's good. But now Jesus is going to drill down a little bit. He says to them, and this ought to get them thinking, you did it for my name's sake. The Christian is called to live for Christ's namesake, for Christ's glory. Here's some scary truth, okay? We're all scared of this. The way that we live is going to communicate something to the broader culture about who Jesus is. We are the only Bible some people will ever read. For some people who will never come to church, never open up the scriptures, all of their thoughts about Jesus are going to be formed by what they see in our lives. That's a scary, it's a scary truth. But it's also a wonderful one. The God in his love has called us his own in that way. Has called us to be his ambassadors has called us to be those who reflect his light. It's a, it's a terrifying responsibility, but it's also a glorious call. But it doesn't only involve saying certain things about Jesus. It involves living in a certain way in light of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. The way that we live affects the reputation in a community of Jesus. No way around that. We've all got to face that. And we all have to face this fact. Jesus cares about his reputation. Right? We all do, and we're a mess. Jesus, the glorious one, cares about his reputation because it's only through him that people can be saved, forgiven of their sins. He cares about his reputation. Now, I'm going to say something hard, but I love you. And I've been saying it to myself all week, okay? I'm preaching to myself right now. Jesus cares about his reputation. The way that we live as it pertains to morality proves whether or not we do. Jesus cares about his reputation. The way that we live as Jesus' followers, as his ambassadors, his representatives, cares, proves, excuse me, whether or not we do. And that was the situation with some in Pergamum. They had right belief, 
but it wasn't. They weren't letting it have the right effect in their lives. So Jesus commends them for the truth about himself, and now he will correct them because they're not getting the truth about holiness. Verses 14 and 15. He says, but I have a few things against you. Gosh, what a terrifying phrase. I have a few things against you because you have there some who hold to the teaching of Balaam who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. Thus you also have some who in the same way hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Okay, this bears some explanation. What, 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 what is he talking about here? Well, the essence of it is this. Okay, I'll give you the background, then I'll give you the essence. The essence is that there were some, notice he says it's some, it's not everyone in the church, there were some in the church who were making light of sin, who were compromising in light of broader culture. It was a tough culture. Throne of Satan, where Satan dwells. And they were compromising as it pertained to morality and sexual morality, hence immorality. And they weren't just doing it themselves, but they were teaching others in the church. That's the teachings of Balaam and the Nicolaitans. To make light of sin, hey, 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 Christians, let's not get crazy with this whole thing. Everybody's doing it. It's all right. Culture has changed. Not a big deal. Do what you want to do. And encouraging some people in the church to engage in sexual immorality. That's the essence of it. Now, he mentions Balaam. Balaam was a prophet in the Old Testament in uh, Numbers 22 through 25. And it's when Israel was wandering in the wilderness, right? And during that time, they would encounter various other kingdoms in the land and there would be war. And Israel was big by this time and had God on their side and it was generally going well for them when they were obedient to God. And now they're camped out on the east side of the Jordan River just across from Jericho. And the Midianites were near there. And Balak is the king of the Midianites. He's a Midian king. And he sees Israel camped out there. And he's like, gosh, I remember what they did to the Amalekites. Like, they're pretty gnarly. And I can see that there's a war brewing here. And I don't think we could take them. I need some backup. And there was this prophet living north of there whose name was Balaam. And he sends his messengers to Balaam and says to Balaam, I want you to come down here and help me with Israel. Because the reputation of Balaam was that who he would bless would be blessed and who he cursed was cursed. And so he said, Balaam, I'll give you anything that you want. I will pay you well if you just come and curse Israel for me. And Balaam was at first hesitant and eventually he went with them and he went to go curse Israel. But every time Balaam opened up his mouth, blessings came out instead. God was in control of this thing. And three different times, Balaam is standing there with Balak and Balak made these seven altars and sacrificed and there they are overlooking Israel. Balak's like, okay now, Balaam, curse them. And Balaam's like, I could only say what God wants me to say. Let's see. And he opens up his mouth and blessings come through. And Balak loses his mind, the king of the Midianites. He's like, wait a minute. I brought you here and paid you well to curse the Israelites and you've blessed them three times. This is not helping. And so apparently what took place then is that Balaam being unable to curse the Israelites because of God's sovereignty over his mouth, he, he suggested to Balak, the king of the Midianites, that there was another way. If Balak would just send his young women down into the camp of the Israelites to seduce the men, engage them in the worship of their false gods and sexual immorality as worship, then what Balaam knew is that God would judge that. And Balak said, great idea. Sent the women down into the camp. The men were seduced and they engaged in sexual immorality and the worship of false gods and God killed 24,000 of them. So then Balaam becomes a type in the New Testament for those who lead others astray in making light of sin. And the reminder that God doesn't make light of sin even when we do, even when all of culture is saying no big deal, even when part of the church is saying, no, don't be bound by those old-fashioned rules, Jesus doesn't make light of it. And that's what's going on in the text. And the Nicolaitans apparently were teaching the same thing, to make light of sin and that it was okay to engage in sexual immorality 
And then this led to the worship of all sorts of false gods during that time. And what we begin to see in scripture and in this text is that Jesus is serious about holiness. And he's serious. Now it's going to get a little bit uncomfortable from here on out, okay? Sermon's going to be a little bit uncomfortable. You only get it for 45 minutes. I had to deal with it all week. Jesus is serious for his church and in his church about sexual purity. He says, I've got some stuff against you. And it had primarily to do that they were giving in to the prevailing sexual culture of the day. Now, here's what we often do when we read what scripture has to say about sexual morality. In other words, not having sex outside of marriage. Okay, that homosexuality is a wrong activity. That adultery is a grievous sin. We see those things and we're like, ah, that's so outdated. I mean, I could understand how back in Bible times that made sense. We've got a totally different culture now. I mean, culture, we just kind of grown beyond that and different things are acceptable and we see why that makes sense. Well, there's a couple of reasons why that's not the right way to think. One is it's a short-sighted view of history. You need to read a history book once in your life. We are not the first culture to be sexually perverse. We're not the first culture to applaud what God calls an abomination. It goes all the way back before Noah's flood. It goes all the way back to Sodom and Gomorrah. This stuff goes way back. In fact, the culture that Jesus was speaking to 2,000 years ago was, by all accounts, worse than ours. It was a culture full of false false gods and temples to those false gods. And the main way that they worshiped those gods was through sacrifice and illicit sex that included prostitution, homosexuality, and sexual mutilation. And that was a form of worship in that culture. You know a god is invented by man when the way to worship is through illicit sex. And scripture steps in and Christ stepped in and said, there's a, there's a different way to live. You weren't, you weren't created for those things. I've made you differently. Those things are destructive. I'm calling you to be sexually pure and moral, monogamous, not engaging in sex outside of marriage, not engaging in homosexuality. And as ridiculous as that sounds to culture's ears right now, it sounded even more so 2,000 years ago in Pergamum where Satan's throne was. So it doesn't really hold water and say, gosh, it's outdated and that's not really the way that it works anymore. This is ancient stuff. Listen to what Cicero, who existed just a couple of decades, he was a, a Roman elder statesman and a contemporary of Julius Caesar and Mark Antony. Listen to what he said, very similar to what our culture says today. If there's anyone who thinks that young men should be absolutely forbidden from the love of courtesans, which was an upper-class prostitute or prostitutes that hung around the court of pagan temples, if anyone who thinks that young men should be absolutely forbidden from the love of courtesans, he's extremely severe. See how this is familiar language? He's extremely severe. Come on. Then he says, I'm not able to deny the principle he states but he's at variance not only with the license of what our own age allows, but also with the customs and concessions of our ancestors. When indeed was this not done? Everybody's doing it and has always done it. When did anyone ever find fault with it? When was such permission denied? When was it that 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 which is now lawful was not unlawful? Doesn't that sound like somebody could have wrote that in the newspaper today? about the sexual issues of our day? You see, we can't just say, oh, these things are old-fashioned. Sexual immorality has always been around. And God's call to holiness and purity in this area has always been around for his people. Let's look at a couple of those passages that speak to this. Turn to 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Remember, all the T's are together in the New Testament. That helps you find them. Always helps me. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. If you're next to someone who doesn't have a Bible, let them read along with you because this is important. 
1 Thessalonians chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Paul writes and says, Finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God. Okay? There's the goal of the Christian. Walk in a way that pleases God. Just as you actually do, but that you may excel still more. For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God. Okay, this is clear-cut stuff. Here's God's will for you, Christian. Your sanctification, holiness. That is that you abstain from sexual immorality. That each of you know how to possess his own vessel. Talking about our body. In sanctification and honor. Not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. And that no man transgress and defraud his brother in this matter because the Lord is the avenger in all these things, just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. Consequently, he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. There it is. God says, I, I know what humanity is saying. I, I know what culture is saying. I know what Pergamum was saying. I know what Carpenter Eventure and Santa Barbara is saying. But here's what I'm saying. But I'm calling you to a different way of being, a, a different way of living. That you're mine, that I purchased you with my blood, that you belong to me. And I'm a holy God. Therefore, my will for you is holiness in your life because I want wholeness in your life. And sexual immorality always brings brokenness to individuals, to couples, to a community, to a culture at large. In history, that's evidential. And so we're called to holiness. We're called to an entirely different standard. Remember, the world is going to read this and say, how silly, how outdated, how obscure, how old-fashioned, how close-minded, how bigoted, how unfair, how on the wrong side of history are you? That was the situation that Jesus was speaking into in Pergamum as well. Let's look at another passage in 1 Corinthians. It's a little bit to your left. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. This is going to be super unpopular. First Corinthians chapter six, starting at verse nine. Do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither fornicators, that's sex outside of marriage, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, that was male prostitution in the day, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers shall inherit the kingdom of God. Stop right there, look at me. What you want me to do right now is tell you how that text doesn't apply to you. Because you've seen yourself in at least some portion of that text. And the uncomfortable, unpopular truth is that the word of God is saying these people practicing these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So you're saying, Pastor Britt, help me out here. Tell me how that doesn't apply to me. Maybe I will. In the next verse, it says, verse 11, and such were some of you. But, speaking of the Christian now, you were washed, you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of God. I want you to notice what's happening. He's laying out a list that many of us are engaged in some of these things. He says, these people will not inherit the kingdom of God. There's not eternal life. There's not heaven for them. And such were some of you. But, and the but is huge. But you were washed. 
You were sanctified. You were justified. In other words, though those things were true about you, you have been forgiven of your sins on the basis that you've repented of them and put your faith in Jesus Christ. So now you have eternal life. You have entrance into the kingdom of God. But I want you to notice. Don't let yourself off too easy. Such were some of you. The rob, the difficulty, the challenge becomes when we call ourselves Christians, but yet we still are some of those things. Christians, I mean, Scripture supposes that right belief about Jesus Christ is going to cause right behavior through the help of the Holy Spirit in our lives. I mean, it just draws, here's, here's what's, it just, it's just black and white. We want it to be 50 shades of gray. It's not. Such were some of you, but you have been washed. You've been sanctified. You've been justified. In other words, if you call yourself a Christian, those things should no longer be descriptive of you. And if they are, well, beloved, then we have a problem then we have a real problem. And that was the problem in Pergamum. That was the problem in Pergamum. Is that they hadn't yet their, let excuse me, their orthodoxy, their right belief about Jesus Christ, who he is, his glory, his power, his wonder, his kindness, his love, and his saving work through the cross and resurrection. Though they believed in that and they proclaimed that, they hadn't yet let it form the way that they thought, felt, and acted about sin. And Jesus is saying, not cool. Doesn't cut it. I'm concerned about my reputation. That's what he's saying. And so in verse 16, he kind of tells him what to do. Go back to Revelation chapter two. He doesn't kind of tell him what to do. He gives it to him straight. He says in verse 16, repent therefore, or else I'm coming to you quickly and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. Repent therefore. You're acting like that old life. Such were some of you, but don't live that way anymore. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. God's will for you is that you possess your vessel, your body, in sexual holiness and impurity. That's got to do with what you look at. That's got to do with who you sleep with. That's got to do with what you believe about sexuality. Even in a culture that would say that's insane, unfair, not right. And Rome had a big sword in Pergamum. Antipas felt it. In Rome, so to speak, culture has a big sword now. The question for the Christian is whose sword do you fear more, the sword of culture or the sword of Christ? It's hard not to cave to culture. They've got a big sword. They can easily label you and ostracize you and in other countries kill you for standing up for your faith and living out the morals that Jesus Christ would call us to. Christian, those things that we just read, we live in a culture that would say that's ridiculous and closed-minded and unfair. But culture has always said that. Whose sword do you fear more? Jesus said, repent, or I'm coming to you with a sword to make war. That's uncomfortable. (laughs) There's a couple ways in which the sword, the truth of God, the word of God, wars. The first way is for the Christian who's dabbling in sin, engaging in sin, not walking rightly before the Lord. The sword comes to us, the truth of God's word, and it's like a sword because it pricks a conscience. That's what's happening with some of you today. It pricks the conscience. Like a sword, it, it wounds the pride that would say, well, I want my way, not God's way. It cuts away our camouflage and says, well, I'm okay, aren't you okay? Aren't we all okay? The things that we hide under. It pierces our defenses, our justifications, our rationalizing our sin, justifying ourselves in it. It exposes our motives. 
lays bare our needs and our sin. So sometimes Jesus comes with a sword and, and makes war even against his own church by, by convicting us. And that's a gift of God. He only does this because he loves us and he's concerned about two things, our good and his glory. And they are very much connected. And so he says, repent. And repent is not a bad word. Repentance is a beautiful word. Repentance is a word of God's love and kindness and grace because it's in repentance that we find forgiveness. So if someone says to you, hey man, repent, you don't say, how dare you? You say, yes, thank you. Think about Peter before the nation of Israel in Acts chapter three when they discovered that they were guilty of crucifying the Messiah and they were so horrified by that, they stood before Peter and said, Peter, what should we do? And Peter said, I've got good news for you. Repent, therefore, that your sins may be wiped away and that times of refreshing may come from being in the presence of the Lord. You see, repentance is a gift. We think, oh, I'm not going to repent. Why? Well, it's, it, it's to admit that you are wrong. Get over it. You're wrong. God is right. Well, I'm not going to repent. Why? Because your pride is connected to it. That's what the sword does. It cuts our pride. Well, I'm not going to repent. Why? Because you're too invested in it. You don't want to give up her. You don't want to give up him. You don't want to give up it. And you think that in your sexual immorality, you're free when actually you're bound. And Jesus came to set you free. And the truth shall set you free. And the truth is that we need to repent of these things, that our sins may be wiped away and times of refreshing may come from being in the presence of the Lord. Restoration of relationship. Confession is a gift. 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins to God, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. The opposite of confession is hiding. The opposite of of confession is is self-protection. We've already been exposed by God's word. In God's love, it's warring against us if we're persisting in rebellion and sexual immorality. So confess and repent that we might be forgiven and engage in the work of transformation by the power of the Holy Spirit to be made more like Jesus because in that is our good, is true freedom, is wholeness, and is the glory of God. But there's a second way that the sword becomes, well, that the sword is used. And it's for those that will not repent. It's for those that won't repent. And then it's judgment. Remember, Balaam became a type of those who would lead others into sexual immorality. But he was also a reminder that God judges sin. And for those that refuse to repent in light of God's word, his revealed truth that we're all accountable now because we've heard it, accountable too. If we don't repent, there's only judgment left. Jesus said this in John 12. I have come as light into the world so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my sayings and does not keep them, I do not judge them for I didn't come to judge the world but to save the world. But he who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has one who judges him. The word I spoke will judge him on that last day. You do know there's a last day. You do know that there is a judgment. We can't, we can't hardly move forward in this wicked, wicked world without believing that there will come a day where God will judge wickedness and unrighteousness and sin, where everything that has gone wrong will be set right by Christ and his power and his love. We do know that there's a judgment. And that God has sufficiently revealed truth and righteousness and his will in his word so that we all together as humanity will stand under the judgment of God's word that day. And the sword of Rome was something to be feared. But the kingdom of Christ outlasts the kingdom of Rome. The kingdom of Christ is bigger than the kingdom of this culture. And Jesus said, boy, this is a really good one. Matthew 10 
Do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. I can't apologize for what Jesus says. I can't remind you that he loves you dearly. Proved it through his death on the cross to pay the price for your sins and for my sins. Is desperately wanting you to confess and repent to him that he might forgive you of your sins and bring you into relationship with him and begin to heal your life and give you new life and the promise of eternal life, eternity in heaven. But we have all these other fears of what that might cost us. And Jesus says, don't don't fear those who can only throw your body in prison and destroy the body. Fear the sovereign one who is the judge of all of history and eternity. And the question for us, and I've I've had to ask myself this all week. Again, you're getting this for 45 minutes. We've got two minutes left. I've dealt with this for five days. Had to ask myself, are there areas where I'm giving in to the sword of the spirit of the age that's pushing me to indulge in the flesh. Because the whole world says it's okay. And many, even within the church, make light of it. I had this couple come up to me after second service. I, I stand by the door and say goodbye to you guys often on Sundays. And this couple, I hadn't seen them before. They, they walked up to me. They were an older couple. And And they said, hey, we've been dating for a long time and now we're engaged and we're going to get married and we like to sleep together and have sex. Is that wrong? And I said, yes, you're fornicators and you need to repent. And they said, okay, thank you, and walked away. (laughs) I don't don't know what they're going to do with that and I hope they never hear this. They'd be so embarrassed. His name was, um, just kidding. Never. I don't even know their name. But you know, they're going to have to kind of go weigh that out now, aren't they? They're going to have to go really think about that. That's, that's going to cost them something. It's going to mean some real changes in the relationship. And, and, and we, when, when push comes to shove and we're confronted with our sin, we figure out pretty quickly whose sword we fear most. And so in his love, God calls us to repent. God says, I have a better way, a better way of being, a better way of living. I want to forgive your sins and change your life and heal it. But it happens as you follow me in holiness, as you forsake sin and pursue righteousness. That's what God has for us. And what he wanted the church to know was that in that there would be great reward. Here's the final verse where we end. I have no idea what it means. Verse 17. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, remember overcomes in this context is to stick with Jesus, cling to Jesus, be faithful to Jesus, not depart from him or the faith. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows but he who receives it. I'm not real sure what that means. You know, I've read hundreds of pages this week on on what that might mean. I don't know, but I have an idea. I think what Jesus is reminding us here of is the fact that he has something better than whatever seems so necessary in this world. Remember what manna was? Manna was a bread that God provided for Israel during their difficult time in the wilderness from heaven. It was, it was God's provision for them. And they ate it and they were satisfied. You, you remember that? He says, to him who overcomes, stick with me to the end, be faithful by grace, by the power of the Holy Spirit. I'll, I'll give you some hidden manna. You, you know what I think he might be speaking to? There's those deep places of dissatisfaction in our lives that cause us to engage in idolatry. I'm not satisfied in whatever area it is. And so we start to look for, and this is idolatry now, we start to look for validation, joy, peace, 
recognition in lesser things in Jesus Christ. We start to form our identity in lesser things and, and spend our life on lesser things. And I think Jesus is saying to a church that was gauging in idolatry, stick with me. At the end, there's going to be hidden manna, something that truly satisfies. Well, who might that be? Jesus said in John chapter 6, I am the bread of life. I think Jesus is saying that if you open your eyes, if you'll stick with me, if you'll choose to obey, you will see that I satisfy you more than all the other things you're so afraid of forsaking. Maybe. But then the white stone with a name on it that nobody knows, who knows what that is? I think I know. (laughs) I think this. I think one of the reasons... Not always, but one of the reasons that we engage in illicit sexual immorality is because we have unmet desires for intimacy. We want deep, secret, intimate connection. And there's a right way in which that's meant to be met in God's economy and in your life. When it's not met in right ways, we look for it in illicit ways. Sexual immorality. And we, we find out pretty soon, sleep with who you want, we find out pretty soon that it doesn't satisfy. I think that Jesus is reminding us that if you'll just stick with me, I will in, you, in myself give to you an intimacy that ultimately satisfies. That's what this, this little stone is with a name on it that nobody knows. In other words, Jesus is saying, this is just gonna be between us. You're craving intimacy. I'm, I'm the true answer to your cravings. You're not going to find it in that stuff. Stick with me. Cling to me. Draw near to me. Pursue me. And in that, we'll have this thing that will ultimately satisfy you and free you from pursuing those other things. That's the hope of the truth that we have in Jesus Christ. This text reminds us that Jesus is better than anything the world has to offer. And anything that he's calling you to forsake is not as valuable as a hidden manna and the white stone with a secret intimate name on it. He's better than anything else the world has to offer. The psalmist said, taste and see that the Lord is good. But sometimes we can't taste until we forsake certain things. May we do it by grace, amen? Lord, we thank you for the hard truth of your word. I know that those who are here today, you love them so dearly, Lord, and you know our lives. You know my lives, Lord. You know the areas where I need to repent and have been repenting this week. And thank you, God, that you love us still, but you love us too much to just let us get away with it. So we ask that you would lovingly deal with us by your spirit today. Lord, if there's people here who have never repented of their sins and turned to you for forgiveness, we pray that they would do it today and experience being washed and sanctified and justified, forgiven. And those of us who already believe in your truth but aren't walking in accordance to it, convict us and give us the grace to repent and then begin to heal us, Lord. And help us, Holy Spirit, to find all of our satisfaction, all the intimacy, all the nourishment that we need in the person of Jesus. You alone, Satisfy the soul.